Hey guys, just wanted to hop in and tell you, you're going to notice a difference in my voice this week. I just got over a really bad flu and I still have some of the residual symptoms, but I'm feeling better and I wanted to get a, an episode out for you guys before you think I fell off the face of the earth. So with no further ado, here is this week's episode. What's up, shadowy sleuths? Welcome to Sinister Silhouettes, the podcast where we dive headfirst into the darkest corners of the human psyche. I'm Tasha Pierce, your guide through the twisted tapestry of true crime, unsolved mysteries, and paranormal phenomena. Together, we'll unravel these sinister silhouettes, shining a light on the darkness that can reside within the human soul. Please do me the honor of rating, reviewing, and subscribing to Sinister Silhouettes wherever you're listening. There's nothing new under the sun, and to prove it, today we're going to take a little journey back to April 2005 when the excitement of an upcoming 600-guest wedding was overshadowed by the mysterious disappearance of the bride-to-be. Join us as we dive into the intriguing tale of Jennifer Wilbanks and the astonishing events that unfolded during the search for her. On a seemingly ordinary evening jog, Jennifer Wilbanks vanished without a trace. Her fiancé, John Mason, alerted the police two hours later, setting off a frantic search operation that a couple had been gearing up for their April 30th wedding, a time that should have been filled with excitement and anticipation. However, fate had other plans, leaving Jennifer's family and friends in turmoil as they confronted what appeared to be a heartbreaking tragedy. As news of Jennifer's disappearance spread, the community came together in a remarkable display of unity and support. Over 250 people joined the search efforts, combing the Georgia area for any sign of their missing neighbor. In the midst of what seemed like a dark cloud, the outpouring of concern and care from the local community provided a glimmer of hope for Jennifer's safe return. But it wasn't just the local efforts that came into play. Brace yourselves as we explore how two media innovations, MySpace and the 24-hour news cycle, transform this case into any criminal's worst nightmare. When Jennifer vanished without a trace, her loved ones in the local community sprung into action to find her, but soon the nation joined the hunt, thanks to two groundbreaking media revolutions that were gaining momentum during the mid-2000s. The first of these innovations was the 24-hour news cycle, a brainchild of media mogul Ted Turner from CNN fame. Fueled by the public's insatiable appetite for details on high-profile cases like the O.J. Simpson trial, this round-the-clock news coverage became a juggernaut in delivering real-time updates to the masses. As Jennifer's story unfolded, the nation couldn't turn away from their screens, eager for any glimmer of hope or hints of closure. But that's not all. Enter MySpace, a social media platform that, although pale in comparison to today's giants, boasted a remarkable 1 million monthly users at the time. MySpace was a hub of connectivity, where users craved the latest updates and sought out connections with friends and strangers alike. The combination of the 24-hour news cycle and MySpace's connectivity 
proved to be a force to be reckoned with. As the news of Jennifer's disappearance spread like wildfire, the nation was brought together virtually, driven by an unstoppable urge to help find her. The community rallied, offering support and leads from all corners of the country. Can you imagine the overwhelming impact of millions of eyes and ears eagerly following Jennifer's story, hoping for her safe return? The intensity of that media storm must have been a nightmare for any criminal seeking to remain hidden. The convergence of these media innovations created a pressure cooker for anyone trying to evade capture. The eyes of the nation were on the hunt, and every development in the case was scrutinized under the spotlight of relentless coverage. It's truly fascinating how technology can transform the dynamics of an investigation and rally people together for a common call. In Jennifer's case, it was a powerful tool in the search for truth. And as the search intensified, the pressure eventually led to a startling revelation, one that sent shockwaves through the entire nation. Despite the dedicated search, the case presented numerous twists and turns. Local police speculated publicly about the reasons behind Jennifer's disappearance, leading to whispers of premarital jitters making the rounds. Now, thoughts such as that were quickly dismissed, with the concerned public upset that anyone would even consider that as a possibility. No, it had to be the fiancé. He was the last person to see her. Maybe there was an argument about the upcoming nuptials that went too far. Yep, the true crime enthusiasts were on the case way back in the early aughts. But as investigators dug deeper, they encountered obstacles that only added to the confusion. On April 28th, Major Donald Woodruff from the Duluth uh, Police Department made a big announcement. They were treating Jennifer Wilbanks' disappearance as a criminal investigation. Cue the FBI and the Georgia Bureau of Investigation who jumped in on the hunt, determined to solve this mystery and bring Jennifer home. But you know how it goes sometimes. False leads and evidence that seemed promising turned out to be nothing but disappointments. They found clumps of dark brown hair, clothing, even suspected murder weapons. But none of it was connected to Jennifer's case. Talk about making things even more complicated for the investigators. And of course, like we always say here on Sinister Silhouettes, Say it with me, y'all, once with feelings. Believe half of what you see and none of what you hear. Just when the mystery seemed unsolvable, a dramatic turn of events shocked everyone involved. Jennifer contacted her fiancé from a payphone. Remember those? She told him she had been abducted by strangers and sexually assaulted. The kidnappers were a Hispanic man, and a 40-something white woman, and they were traveling in a blue van. Now, the call from the payphone was traced to a 7-Eleven in Albuquerque, New Mexico, a revelation that left everyone perplexed. However, what followed during the FBI interrogation turned the case on its head. Jennifer's loved ones were elated to bring her home and prepared to help her recover from the trauma she had experienced. Now, after she returned to Georgia and received medical care, she was interviewed by law enforcement. The details behind Jennifer Wilbanks' disappearance were more astonishing than anyone could have imagined. When the FBI questioned the initial story she told them, she changed it. Eventually, her claims of abduction and assault 
were exposed as lies. Dun, dun, dun. Her shocking confession sent shock waves through the nation. It turned out that Jennifer had engineered the entire ordeal to escape the pressures of her impending wedding. She only contacted her fiance because she ran out of money. The fallout from Jennifer's actions was far reaching. Not only has she betrayed her family and friends by creating this elaborate hoax, the entire nation was also duped. And imagine her fiance, John, and all the emotions he must have felt. He reported her missing in a timely manner, searched high and low for her, was literally accused of murdering her, only to find out she disappeared because she was having second thoughts about spending the rest of her life with him. The following month was probably one of the toughest of Jennifer's life. On May 9th, she entered a facility in order to receive mental health treatment. May 17th, she officially ended her engagement to John. She was charged with making false statements to law enforcement on May 25th, and those were federal charges that could have landed her in prison for up to five years. Now, on May 31st, Jennifer Wilbanks reached an agreement with the city of Duluth, Georgia, to repay more than $13,000 in costs incurred by the city in their search. And there was still some unfinished business with John Mason too. But while she was medicated in that facility, he convinced her to sign a book deal he negotiated on her behalf. He then took the money from that deal and brought a house for himself, for himself, not for him and Jennifer. So in October 2006, she sued him for $500,000, her half of the home plus damages. He, he countersued for being left at the altar in such a public fashion. And things were messy for a while, but they ended up dropping their litigation against one another by December of that same year. Now, in case you were curious, John eventually found love and in 2008, married in a modest ceremony at his parents' home. Jennifer escaped a prison sentence by paying some restitution, uh, getting mental health treatment that was ongoing, and she served two years of probation. And even though she engineered her roots to escape marriage in the most public way, she was still able to find love. Unfortunately, her 11-year marriage ended in divorce in 2021, but she still currently resides in Gainesville, Georgia and works in human resources. Now, as we wrap this story up of Jennifer Wilbanks, her curious case serves as a reminder of the complexities of human behavior and the consequences of deception. The vanishing vows and subsequent revelations shocked the nation and left us questioning the lengths people will go to escape their fears. Now, I know that this story is ringing a few bells, and that is by design. Yes, this story actually leads heavily into what I have to say about the Carly Russell case. Now, in the event that you've been living under a rock for the last couple of weeks, I am going to give you the Cliff Notes version of the Carly Russell case. Carly Russell was a 25-year-old nursing student from Hoover, Alabama, she was driving along an interstate, busy interstate, in her town, and she called 911 to report that she saw a toddler on the side of the road 
at night. It was like nine something at night. So this would definitely be a dangerous situation. Carly was going to wait for the police to arrive so that they can render aid to this baby. And when police got there, they found Carly's red Mercedes Benz running, still keys in the ignition. They found food that she had purchased for her and her mother's dinner for that evening. Uh, they found her wig, her cell phone, her Apple watch, her purse, all in the car or near the car. But they didn't find Carly and they didn't find a toddler. Now this case of this missing young lady became national news. People all over literally the world were looking for Carly Russell. The more information and evidence that was released by the Hoover Police Department, the more skeptical people became of her story. Cameras located on the highway had footage of her stop and the footage did not support the story that she gave to 911 operators. But still, the search continued for Carly. That is until July 15th at around 10.45 p.m., Carly Russell returned home to the home that she shared with her parents on foot, alone. In her initial statement to law enforcement, she claimed that she had been abducted by a man who came out of the woods as she was searching for this child and was taken in the back of an 18-wheeler by a man with orange hair that, that was balding in the middle and a woman that she never saw. She claimed that these abductors blindfolded her and forced her to undress and they took photos of her nude body. Carly then went on to say that she escaped once and they uh, were able to re-abduct her and took her to a home. Then they took her in, in another vehicle and she escaped again. And that is how she got to her parents' home. Now, it's amazing to me that during this story that all of this occurred in a very close area around her parents' home where she could easily walk through some woods and find home. But that was me putting, starting to put on my detective hat after the, the initial day of uh, Carly's disappearance. Carly's parents then went on the Today Show and reiterated that there was an abductor loose and that people still needed to be on high alert. The investigation was continuing into Carly's disappearance. But later on, we got a press conference from the Hoover Police Department that spun everything on its head, starting with some of the searches that Carly made using her phone in the days prior to her disappearance. Searches such as, do you have to pay for an Amber Alert? And how do I steal money from my register without being caught? And the movie Taken with Liam Neeson, when his daughter kept getting kidnapped, he's a CIA operative, that movie. So those are things that start to point at this being a planned disappearance and not an abduction. Then there's the matter of a little bit more preparation on Carly's part. Carly uh, was an employee at a day spa and on that last day, the, the day of her abduction, she stole from the day spa one of their plush robes and some toilet paper. Then she went to Target and bought snacks and 
the famous snack of the most famous snack of them all in in her her list was the Cheez-Its. <laughs> Cheez-Its became a very important part of this story because those items were not found in the car along with uh, all the rest of her her belongings that the police uh, found when they reached her vehicle. So she took the snacks, she took the robe, she took the toilet paper, and she had $107 cash in her sock. So you would expect that if she had disrobed in front of her abductors, they probably would have found that $107 and pocketed that, right? But we're giving this too much thought because as it turns out, this story was faked. Carly lied about it all, all of it. And of course, half of the, the national community realized that even after watching the, the camera footage of the highway, many of us realized Carly ain't telling the truth. But then there's that other half of the national community and mostly the black community, because I did not mention at all, Carly Russell is a black young lady. So given what we know about how little coverage uh, mainstream media usually gives to a case involving a black woman. The, the community is divided. Some of us are saying, and by the community, I mean the black community. Some of them are saying, hey, when a person is doing something and it is obviously wrong, we are free to call out the error in their ways where the other part of the black community was like you should be standing behind this black woman uh this is this is why uh, there, there's so much division in the black community no i disagree wholeheartedly with that assumption the the division comes when somebody who for some reason we've all decided that she's going to be the spokesperson for kidnapped victims in the black community and then we find out that she lied and she took our support for granted. So first and foremost, no one person should shoulder the responsibility of representing everything that is and ever will be black. She doesn't represent me. She doesn't represent my family. And if she, by some stretch of our ancestral linkage over decades and in, in centuries can be linked back to me, there, there are, a million people between me and Carly Russell. So because Carly Russell does something wrong does not mean that the national community should look at all black people and say, oh, they're, they're all doing something wrong. Because if that's the case, then we feel that way, hopefully, about the white community. Because also, I did not mention Jennifer Wilbanks is a white woman who faked her disappearance long before Carly Russell. So the same way we did not use Jennifer Wilbanks as the poster child for white women who uh, claim to have been abducted and sexually assaulted, the same goes for Carly Russell. Carly Russell is one young, misguided young lady. She did a plethora of really, really, really stupid things. And as of the other day, I think that was July 24th, through a statement from her attorney, she said she apologized. That does not make it go away. That just puts a little band-aid on all of the hurt that she caused, not only the Hoover community, her family, but the national community. So there are 
charges expected to be coming for Carly Russell. And that is one of the things that I want to address because so many people are calling for this young lady's head. And you know what? There should be consequences behind the actions that Carly Russell took in perpetrating this elaborate hoax, this crazy story, and all of the crazy stuff that she had to do to pull it off. So yes, there needs to be consequences. But then I look at the consequences that Jennifer Wilbanks faced, and the stories are very similar. Jennifer Wilbanks served two years probation, paid restitution, and got mental health treatment. And I think that Carly Russell should probably face a similar punishment for this crime. And it is a crime. But I also think that people are so ready to just throw this young lady in the garbage. Where we see that Jennifer Wilbanks went on to have some semblance of a normal life. Yes, this is something we'll never forget that she did back in 2005 in a moment of extreme stress that she was under because she was having second thoughts about getting married. While we don't know why Carly executed this hoax, there is a lot of speculation. There is nothing substantiated. We also have to realize that there is room for redemption. She can, at 25 years old, she can go on to be a productive member of society. Maybe not as a nurse. She may, that ship might have sailed. But in some capacity, she could have something to add to society after we get past the hurt of being duped as a nation. Hopefully, the national community, and I keep using that term, <laughs> Hopefully, the national community can find it within themselves to forgive Carly Russell, but to also forgive yourselves for even in the face of overwhelming evidence that she was lying uh, for fighting so much amongst one another. On social media was a complete hotbed of mess behind this case. And again, especially, especially within the black community. You were either, um, you wanted to see that girl die, you didn't want a happy ending, or you're just plain stupid if you don't see um, that this girl is lying. There was really hardly any middle ground. And it's still kind of that way. There are still people who are defending Carly Russell. Let the record show, I'm not defending her actions, but I am defending her right to pay a price to society and attempt to live a normal life, just like Jennifer Wilbanks and probably Sherry Papini. She, that's been kind of quiet. We'll talk about that one another day. <laughs> I think that Sherry Papini case was worse because children, her own children were involved. And I, did, I just didn't like the fact that you can have, you know, a, a, a breakdown, but to hurt your children, that's, a, that's an entirely different thing. But anywho, I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on these two cases. You can send any and all feedback to Sinister Silhouettes Podcast at gmail.com. You can also do me a, a big favor and rate and review this episode on whatever 
whatever platform you're listening on, uh, I would really appreciate it. it would go a long way towards helping get the word out about my little show. I also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Tasha Pierce. You can pick a tier, any tier. I have another channel that is tied into that Patreon as well. So, you know, just let me know if you become a patron, which show you are patronizing. It's either After the Snap or Sinister Silhouettes. With all that being said, I don't have an awful lot more to add to this this week. Uh, Join me next week for another Twisted Tale. And until then, shadowy sloops, stay safe out there. Peace.